0: Understanding Childhood Cancer. I'm Dr. Jeff, and this is my podcast that's mostly for parents of children with cancer or leukemia, but it's also for anyone else who's involved in caring for children with cancer or leukemia. And that's right, my name's Jeff McCowedge. I'm a children's cancer specialist here at the Children's Hospital at Westmead in Sydney, Australia. And today I want to talk about the subject of immune suppression, immune suppression. What I want to talk about is the issue of children being treated for cancer, leukemia, and why they have a weakness in their defences against infections, why they are more susceptible to get infections, and so why we spend so much of our time treating infections and looking for infections and why we're stressing to parents all the time the need to tell us if their child gets a fever or is unwell in any way. What this whole question is about, this whole problem of reduction in the ability to fight off infections and that's what you call immune suppression. You'll hear about immune suppression in other settings. It's not unique to children with cancer or leukemia For instance, there are people who've had a heart transplant and they're on immune suppressive drugs to stop rejection of the heart transplant. And so they likewise are immune suppressed. But today I mostly want to talk about how this whole question of immune suppression arises in the treatment of children with cancer and leukemia. By the way, you might have friends that complain that they always get more colds and flus than everyone else. Or they might say when they get run down, they get more colds and flus and infections and things. And some of them are probably taking extra vitamin C and the echinacea herbs that they buy, you know, herbal remedies and things to so-called boost their immunity. Well, firstly, I'm not a great believer in any of that stuff, by the way, but we're not talking about those people. When we're talking about immune suppression here, we're talking about a whole level of immune suppression that is much more severe than just that person who seems to catch every virus that's going around. Firstly, we should talk about what are the things about the human body that normally are relied upon to protect us from getting infections, to protect us from picking up bacteria and funguses and viruses and things. So let's just go through some of those. Firstly, the body has a number of barriers to infection. So the main one is the skin, of course, and the skin is a good barrier to infections getting into the skin, but when the skin is broken down, of course, then that's a way for germs to get into the system. So we've all seen that if you get a rusty nail stuck in your skin or if you scrape off a bit of skin with gravel rash or you have a cut or something, well that's a breakdown in the skin barrier and that's a way for a bacteria to get into the system and cause an infection. There are other barriers, the lining of our mouth for instance. The lining of our mouth is called mucosa mucosa just refers to the cells that line the inside of your mouth and the inside of your throat and esophagus and stomach and intestines and all of that. All of those cells are called mucosa and they look different in the different organs, but they always have a role in uh, being a barrier to infection getting into the system. Next, let me talk about some of the elements of what we call the immune system. The immune system is Part of our makeup that is involved in protecting us from infections. So the first thing to mention are our white blood cells circulating in our blood. We have a number of different types of white blood cell, and most of them are involved in fighting off different infections. There's different types of white blood cell. There's a particular one called a neutrophil. Neutrophil white blood cell. And neutrophils are very important in particular to fighting off infections with bacteria. Remember, there's different types of germs that can infect people. There's viruses and there's bacteria and there's fungus and there's protozoans and there's all different types of germs. Well, neutrophils are very important to fighting off infections with bacteria and with funguses, yeasts and moulds and things like that. So most of the time, I would think if a small amount of bacteria got into our bloodstream, maybe because we bit our tongue or something like that, then there are neutrophils circulating and they're very good at just mopping up those bacteria before they can cause a problem. There's another type of white blood cell called the lymphocytes. Lymphocytes, and there's two types. There's B cells and T cells you might have heard of, and lymphocytes are a critical part of our immune system. You can't live without them. And they also have a particular activity when we look at capacity to fight viral infections and certain other obscure infections. They do other things, of course. They can detect when a foreign tissue, for instance, is introduced into our system. So if you had a heart transplant, you need to suppress the lymphocytes because they're the ones that will reject the heart. So lymphocytes are very important. The B cells make antibodies and the T cells do a whole lot of other things. Very important to fighting off viruses in particular, but also critical to the whole running of the immune system. And then there's a bunch of other types of white blood cells. There's ones called monocytes and eosinophils and basophils, and they all have very obscure and complex roles in the way our body works and in fighting infection. So that's the first part of the immune system to mention. That's the white blood cells. So they all contribute to what you call cellular immunity. The next thing to mention is the antibodies that are circulating in our bloodstream and in our tissues antibodies are also called immunoglobulins, immunoglobulins, and there's about five different types. There's IgG and IgA and IgM and IgD and IgE, and they all do different things, and they're all found in different parts of the body. The main one that we measure and the main one we can replace is IgG. Antibodies aren't cells, they're chemicals, and they have a particular, what you call, specificity for one particular type of germ. For instance, when you have your immunizations as a child and you have one for tetanus, the aim is to stimulate the body to make an antibody against tetanus. So if you've been immunized and if the immunization works, and it usually does, then you'll have antibodies against tetanus tetanus. And so that helps you to fight off the tetanus germ and infection if you ever encountered it. So if you step on a rusty nail, and that's a good way to introduce a tetanus germ into the bloodstream. Well, if you've been immunized, hopefully you've got an anti-tetanus antibody, and that's going to give you protection against tetanus. And likewise, the immunizations lead to antibodies being present in the bloodstream for all the other things that you're immunized for. Haemophilus, diphtheria, pertussis, pneumococcus, meningococcus, Uh, all of these immunizations are designed to generate an antibody that will then run around in the bloodstream and persist for a very long time and be there in case you ever encounter that particular infection. And immunoglobulins, antibodies are there for hundreds and thousands of different types of infections, uh, including ones that we don't immunise for and they're a very important component of the immune system. And the antibodies work by attaching onto the infection, onto the germ, the bacteria, and then helping the white blood cells to move in and eradicate it. And just to summarise then, talking about what makes up our defences normally, we have barriers to infection, we have the skin and we have the lining of our mouth and intestines, the mucosa that is, to stop bacteria and other germs from getting into the system. We have different types of white blood cells, particularly neutrophils and lymphocytes that are in the bloodstream and ready to deal with infections. And we have antibodies, the immunoglobulins, uh, chemicals in the bloodstream that are specific for all the different germs and help the white blood cells to eradicate them. Now let's talk about what are the things that happen in children with cancer and leukemia that interfere with this immune system. The first one to mention is the disease itself. The cancer or leukemia itself can interfere with elements of the immune system. Now, in particular, it would be in leukemia where we see this in its most extreme form. Leukemia is a disease of the bone marrow and blood. And the problem with it is that the leukemic cells stop the production of the normal cells. And so we can find that a child with leukemia has a very low level of the normal neutrophils, for instance, and the normal lymphocytes. They may have a high white blood cell count, but it's made up of the leukemia cells. And they may have very low levels of neutrophils and lymphocytes and therefore be unable to fight off infections. Normally with treatment, we would hope to get them into remission and eradicate Uh, the leukemia cells and so the normal bone marrow can grow back and then they can start manufacturing neutrophils and lymphocytes again and the immune system will improve. Other types of cancer can have an immune suppressive effect as well. We see it mostly really in leukemia and lymphoma but it is true that certain other cancer types in some obscure way can send out chemicals, cytokines, they're called, that can suppress the immune system. But that effect isn't as extreme as it is in leukaemia. So, for instance, someone with a tumour of the bone of the leg, it may be that if you did sophisticated testing of the immune system, you could detect some abnormality. But it wouldn't normally be something that is a very important abnormality in the immune system. The problems with the immune system would come as we started treating the tumour in the leg. So the problem would be from our treatment, not so much from the tumour in the leg in general. So that's the first thing that can interfere with the immune system is the disease itself and particularly leukaemia, lymphoma. Next, let's talk about those barriers, the things that are meant to keep germs out of our system One of the main ones to talk about would be what we call mucositis. Remember I said the lining of the mouth and the intestines and stomach is mucosa. That lining of the mouth, for instance, is a tissue that is constantly replacing its lining. They are cells that are regularly growing back new cells to be the lining of your mouth. You might have noticed if you've ever bitten your cheek when you were eating and it really hurt and then your mouth was sore for a day or two, it really recovers very quickly, doesn't it? It doesn't keep hurting for weeks and weeks. No, the normal cells in the lining of the mouth are constantly growing back and replenishing themselves so that you've got a good protective lining on the inside of your mouth. And the same thing happens in the stomach and intestines. One of the problems with chemotherapy drugs is that they very often are designed to target any cell that is dividing rapidly, proliferating, and that's how they kill cancer because that's what cancer does. Its cells are growing and dividing rapidly. Unfortunately, our drugs also hit normal tissues that are dividing rapidly or growing rapidly and one of those is the lining of the mouth. And so when we give our chemotherapy drugs to kill the cancer, we might see 7 or 10 or 14 days later that the child develops ulcers in the mouth, a breakdown in the lining in the mouth. And we know the same thing might be happening in the stomach and intestines. And that represents a place where germs can get into the system. Without the normal barrier there, It's just that bit easier for bacteria or viruses or funguses in the mouth and in the intestines to get into the system and cause an infection. Likewise, we may see a problem with the skin during our treatment. For instance, children on chemotherapy usually have a central line. Well, where that central line enters into the skin is a breach in the skin. And so that's a spot where a bacteria could get in, for instance. Or we may see a child that's been very sick and in bed a lot may develop pressure sores on their body from where they've been lying in bed. And that's why the nurses do such a great job in preventing pressure sores because any break in the skin represents a place where bacteria have an easier way to get into the system and cause infection. So the skin's important. The other thing to say is that foreign materials introduced into the body represent a risk for infection. For instance, that central line I mentioned is made of plastic, and so we call that a foreign body. And that's a foreign body that's not only in the body, but it's right into the bloodstream. So that's a way for bacteria to get into the bloodstream if something in the central line system got contaminated. but the body can't really eradicate infections very well on a foreign body. For instance, if surgeon does a knee replacement and an infection gets onto the metal of the knee replacement, well that's a real problem. the The metal doesn't have a proper blood supply, remember. so our antibiotics can't get into the metal or they can't get into the plastic of uh, hip replacement, for instance. So foreign bodies are a bit of a problem if they get infected. The main problem, though, that's really interfering with the immune system in children with cancer and leukemia is our chemotherapy. This is the big one that really wipes out the immune system very significantly a lot of the time. Like I said, our chemotherapy is designed to target cells that are proliferating, active tissues in the body. That's why the hair falls out. That's why you get mouth ulcers. Well, one of the most active tissues in the body is indeed the bone marrow. The bone marrow is working 24 hours a day constantly and very actively pumping out new blood cells, new red cells, new platelets and in particular, new white blood cells. And if we give our chemotherapy drugs, most of the drugs have this problem of hitting the bone marrow, temporarily stopping it from working, and then what we'll see is seven days later, or ten or fourteen days later, we'll see the blood counts dropping. It might be the red cells drop, or it might be the platelets drop, and might need a platelet transfusion even, But today we're talking about those white blood cells. And we'll typically see the white blood cell count drop seven or ten or twelve days after the chemotherapy drugs were given. And then there'll be a few days where the white cell count is low, and it might be very low, it might be close to zero. And then it recovers, and the white cell count comes up again, and the immune system's better for a little while but oftentimes then it's time to give the chemotherapy drugs again. In particular, then, it's during those days when the white blood cell count is very low when we have a problem with infection. And In particular, those neutrophil white blood cells that I mentioned before, they're the ones that are really good for fighting bacteria. Well, they may drop very low. So if they drop below a level of what we call 0.5, That's what you call grade four neutropenic. Neutropenia means a low level of neutrophils and that's the risk time for infection when the patient is neutropenic and particularly neutrophils less than 0.5 is severe but often in our treatments we see them less than 0.2 or even 0.0 for a few days. And what happens then is that if any bacteria do get into the bloodstream, maybe just spontaneously, maybe this happens to normal people every day, I don't know, but if they do get into the system anyway, then the neutrophils just aren't there to kill the bacteria or the mould or the fungus and so the germ can spread through the bloodstream and multiply and multiply and make the patient sick. And so that's why A fever is a big-time emergency in children being treated for cancer and leukemia because the fever could signify there's a bacteria in the blood and we need to give our antibiotics as soon as possible because without neutrophils to fight the bacteria, there's nothing and the bacteria can just proliferate and make the child dangerously unwell and that's why we carry on about fevers so much and want to give antibiotics straight away as soon as there's a fever and get on top of things until the neutrophils can grow back a week or so later. But the other white blood cells are also affected by the chemotherapy, not just the neutrophils. The lymphocytes are affected by chemotherapy. Uh, Different drugs have a different level of effect on that. And lymphocytes don't tend to follow that pattern of dropping after 7 or 10 days and then recovering. So neutrophils are going down and up and down and up and down and up. Lymphocytes tend to just slowly drift down during the course of a chemotherapy program and after some months of chemotherapy, we might see the lymphocytes to be really quite low. And it's only when we stop giving the chemotherapy that those lymphocytes can gradually recover and improve. So with low lymphocyte counts, of course, there's risks of all sorts of infections, but in particular viral infections. Uh, Pneumocystis is a protozoal infection that can uh, cause a bad pneumonia. But really all sorts of infections are more likely to occur ...when a patient has low levels of lymphocytes. So just as an example, the HIV that causes AIDS... ...the problem in that disease is that that virus kills T-cells. T-cells are one of the lymphocytes. And the patient therefore ends up with a very low level of lymphocytes... ...and that's why patients with AIDS get all sorts of severe and obscure infections because they don't have a functioning immune system anymore. And that's what AIDS stands for, the Acquired Immune Deficiency Syndrome. One of the particular drugs we give in leukaemia mostly, but also in other situations, are the drugs called the steroid drugs. In particular, one's called prednisone. Another one's called dexamethasone. These are very important drugs in killing lymphoid leukemia and lymphoma. We regularly give a solid month of prednisone or dexamethasone as part of our program to kill the leukemia lymphoma, but we also use them in other situations. And they also are bad for your lymphocytes. They uh, can lead to reduction in lymphocyte numbers but also, in a way, interfere with the way lymphocytes work, uh, how they work. Lymphocytes are a bit trickier than neutrophils. You can't just measure lymphocytes and get a good sense of what that means. There's the question of how good are those lymphocytes and how well are they working. And these are things that can be tested and measured, but they're rather obscure and difficult tests and they're not in routine use. But the steroids can certainly impair lymphocyte function as well as numbers. Then there's those antibodies, the immunoglobulins that I talked about, IgG the immunoglobulins. Chemotherapy also can lead to low levels of immunoglobulins. I would say that we mostly see a serious effect on immunoglobulins with the more intensive chemotherapy programs. There's a lot of our chemotherapy programs that we give where the immunoglobulin levels, if we measure them in the blood, will be pretty well normal or they'll be certainly enough to think that's an adequate level of immunoglobulins present. It's really with more intensive, the really stronger programs of chemotherapy where we see the immunoglobulin levels dropping. We might see it in the leukemia protocols, for instance, and the very heavy lymphoma protocols, and certainly in the bone marrow transplant setting, and in some of the heavy-duty chemotherapy protocols for other diseases, we may see low levels of immunoglobulins. But with the More medium or low-intensity type chemotherapies, mostly the immunoglobulin levels are pretty good and we could rely on them to be doing their role. The problem is more with the neutrophils and the lymphocytes and the rest of the immune system. A couple of other things to mention that lead to problems with infections. First is that question of nutrition. We find that children on heavy chemotherapy protocols often have a problem with maintaining a good nutritional state. It may be that they are off their food and not interested in eating or they can't bring themselves to eat and some of the drugs cause nausea and vomiting and diarrhoea. There are a lot of stresses to the nutritional system when we are treating children with cancer or leukaemia, particularly when we're giving the very heavy Programs of treatment. I've recorded a whole series of episodes on nutrition you could listen to, but we do know that children with a poor nutritional state are more prone to getting infections. Something about being poorly nourished impacts on the immune system in a very significant way and makes the child more susceptible to infection. And that's one of the reasons why we devote so much effort to maintaining the nutritional state in children. Another thing to mention is what we call bacterial overgrowth or fungal overgrowth. We have to give a lot of antibiotics to children being treated for cancer and leukemia, and there's no getting around that. When they have a fever and they're neutropenic, the antibiotics can be life-saving. But one of the problems with giving antibiotics is that they kill off a lot of the normal bacteria that are in your body. You are meant to have bacteria in your intestines, for instance, and in your mouth and in other places. There is a what we call the normal flora. The normal flora are the normal bacteria that you're meant to have in your intestines, and in your mouth and on your skin. You've probably heard all about this when people talk about uh, good bacteria, good gut bacteria, and they may encourage people to have special yogurts and probiotics and all that sort of thing. That's all talking about the so-called normal flora, the good bacteria. One of the problems with giving antibiotics that we have to do is that it can kill off some of the so-called normal flora or the good bacteria and that can lead to a situation where certain bad bacteria or bad funguses can survive and then they can grow up and That's what you call overgrowth, bacterial overgrowth with bad bacteria. The classic one is a germ called Clostridium difficile. We've known for years that in people who receive antibiotics, sometimes this germ, this bacteria, Clostridium difficile, can overgrow. It can become way more common than it normally is and get to a point where it causes an inflammation of the intestines, a colitis, it's a diarrhoea illness. So that's clostridium difficile. And so if children are having a lot of trouble with diarrhoea, we'll often send off a stool sample to look for clostridium difficile or C. diff. And if we find that, well, of course, then we've got a different antibiotic to try to kill it off. But that's what overgrowth is about. Overgrowth of the bad bacteria or bad funguses because we've killed off the good ones with our antibiotics and other changes that are going on in the child's physiology. The final thing I want to mention as far as causes of immune suppression are the drugs that we give to children who have bone marrow transplants. Till now, I've mostly been talking about the chemotherapy drugs that are designed to kill the cancer, but they have the unfortunate side effect of damaging the normal blood cells, the normal white blood cells. So that's a side effect of those drugs. And typically, it's a situation where the counts are going down and up, down and up, down and up. When we do a bone marrow transplant from one person to the next... That's a different situation. In this situation, we have to give immune suppressive drugs in a sort of longer term way. The problem in this situation is that we don't want the patient to reject the new bone marrow. Remember I talked about someone having a heart transplant or a kidney transplant. We have to give immune suppressive drugs to stop the... The patient from rejecting the heart transplant or the kidney transplant. Well, it's the same with a bone marrow transplant. Bone marrow transplants given as a liquid, by the way, through the line. I've done some talks on this. But that new bone marrow, well, the body would normally recognize it as foreign and it would say, this isn't me, and quickly kill it off. That's why we need to give drugs to the patient to stop them from rejecting the bone marrow. But the second thing is we don't want the bone marrow to reject the patient. So when we put in a new heart or a new kidney, it's all about not rejecting the heart or the kidney. But when we put in new bone marrow, well, the new bone marrow is a functioning immune system. And the new bone marrow can go through the bloodstream have a look around and say, no, this isn't me, and then attack the patient. So now it's the bone marrow attacking the patient, and that's a condition called graft versus host disease. And if you're a bone marrow transplant doctor, you know all about graft versus host disease because it's one of the biggest issues in doing a bone marrow transplant, and that's why you have to pick the right donor, And manipulate the bone marrow sometimes, remove the bad cells from the bone marrow sometimes. They've got all sorts of tricks up their sleeves, but it's very common to have to give strong drugs to the patient to stop this new bone marrow from attacking them, uh, stopping this graft versus host disease. And it might be that uh, these only have to be given for a few months early after the bone marrow transplant. But if this graft-versus-host disease does occur, then stronger and stronger immune-suppressive drugs may have to be given and oftentimes to be given for months and months and months. Now we're talking about a much, much more severe level of immune suppression. These are the strongest immune-suppressive drugs we have and it's immune suppression that goes on for a long time. And bone marrow transplant doctors uh, spend a lot of their time managing immune suppression and managing the infections that occur in children on such immune suppression. This is a whole new level of immune suppression. When I treat a child for, say, a kidney tumour or a bone tumour with my chemotherapy, Most of the time I'm encouraging them still to be able to go to school and go to the shopping centre and go to the football and do all of those things. And I'm not too worried about them being out there in the community. When children have had bone marrow transplants and then if they've ended up on these very immune suppressive drugs, that might not be the case. That might be a situation where the bone marrow transplant team recommend that they... more isolated and keep away from risks of infection. And particularly now we're talking about viruses more than bacteria. So the bone marrow transplant immune suppressive drugs are the most extreme of them all. And it's those children who have the really severe level of immune suppression. Next, I want to talk about how can we measure what a child's immune system is like? How can we measure it? You turn up and say, look, what can you tell me? How bad is the risk? Well, I've got to say that we don't have very sophisticated ways of doing this as a routine. The first thing we do is a basic blood count, and that tells us a lot of important information. We know what the white blood cell count is, and in particular, we want to know what that neutrophil count is. And when we see a neutrophil count that's normal, say, between 2.0 and about 11.0, well that's more reassuring to see a good neutrophil count and when we see a neutrophil count that's low, particularly if it's under 1.0 or particularly under 0.5, then we know that we cannot rely on neutrophils to be doing their very important job in preventing infection and that's a big problem. So that tells us a lot of information about the immune system we can measure the lymphocytes and we can do particular measures of lymphocyte T-cell subsets and B-cell subsets. That's a more sophisticated and expensive set of tests and not one that's really suitable for routine use, but we do it all the time in bone marrow transplant patients, for instance. But it's also very hard to measure the quality of lymphocytes. You know, remember how I talked about their function? It's not just how many are there, but How well will they work? And there might be immune suppressive drugs or steroids in the system that are stopping them from working very well, even though they're there in normal numbers. So that's a tough one to measure. We can measure the lymphocyte count very easy, and we do, but it's a bit harder to interpret. What does it mean and how reassured can we be? The other thing to stress, by the way, is even with a normal neutrophil count, we still want to see a patient if they get a fever. Remember they've got a central line and a central line is a way for bacteria to get into the blood. So even when the neutrophils are completely normal, if there's a central line and a fever, we need to see the patient immediately, even if it's two o'clock in the morning. Once they hit 38 degrees in our centigrade system, we want to see them or if they're shivering and shaking or unwell in some other way. It's infection, infection, infection until proven otherwise. We can measure immunoglobulin levels, by the way. That's very easily done. Just fill out the form, send the blood, and they'll measure the immunoglobulin levels. Uh, In particular, we want to know the IgG level. That's the one that's sort of most important, and it's also the one that we can replace if we have to. We can even measure antibody levels against particular germs. We can send off a blood test to say, what is this patient's immunoglobulin level for tetanus or for diphtheria or one of the other bacteria or viruses that we've given immunizations for. We can measure these things. Now, again, they're not tests that you're ordering once or twice a week, the way we can do a blood count. They're more tests that we do to see if the patient has responded to immunizations Sometimes after treatment, we repeat immunizations, particularly in bone marrow transplants, and we like to document that the immunization has worked. So they're called doing antibody titers, T-I-T-R-E-S, antibody titers, against certain bacteria and viruses. Readily ordered, but not something to be doing every day of the week. It's uh, more for special situations. As far as assessing... A patient's immune system, it's good to see uh, their nutritional state and to see if they've lost a lot of weight. Uh, That can be helpful in us uh, making a judgment. And of course, one of the main things is we are familiar with the chemotherapy we are giving. And we know that if we give a high-risk leukemia protocol, we know that the immune system will be severely impaired. On the other hand, if we're giving... Uh, just one or two drugs, say for a Wilms tumour of the kidney, we might think that this is not as immune suppressive. We still can't relax, we still got to be very cautious, but we know that the immune system of someone on normal Wilms tumour chemotherapy won't be as badly affected as someone who's had a bone marrow transplant or someone being treated for leukaemia. Next, I want to talk about the consequences of all of this. So why am I so obsessed with the immune system? Well, I've already covered this ground, really. The big problem with having a suppressed immune system is that the patient lacks the ability to fight infections. And so they are very prone to developing infections and developing unusual infections. Obscure, uh, rare bacteria that you would never see in a normal child, or rare funguses, or moulds, or other infections. Children on chemotherapy can develop all sorts of strange infections that you wouldn't normally see. And this is a really major problem for our patients. It is indeed the major problem as far as side effects of treatment, namely that risk of infection. And as I've said, if they get a fever at any time, we have to give antibiotics and hope that we can nip it in the bud and eliminate the bacteria before the child becomes more unwell. But it may be that we give our antibiotics and the fever persists and something else happens and declares itself as some other sort of infection, not a bacteria, maybe a fungus infection, a yeast infection. And we can see all sorts of obscure infections that really you just wouldn't normally see in any other child. What can we do to boost the immune system? Well, here our options are only a few as far as things we can do to help protect the child during this dangerous phase. We can give a drug to stimulate neutrophil production and a lot of our children are given a drug, it's called GCSF, Granulocyte Colony Stimulating Factor. GCSF, this is a normal chemical in our body that drives white blood cell production, but it's been made into a drug now and it can be given by an injection, there's a daily form, but mostly nowadays we're using a long acting form called PEG-GCSF, a drug that you can inject once and then it works for about 10 or 14 days to drive the bone marrow to make more neutrophils. They still drop low, they drop just as low, but they recover faster. That's something we're doing very regularly. We can give an immunoglobulin infusion, an antibody infusion. The blood bank prepares these infusions for us and we can give this. And if we need to give it, it's the sort of thing that you might give every four weeks until the immunoglobulin levels started to come back to normal. We're not having to do that very often, but the bone marrow transplant patients are more commonly having it. And we do have patients who need this immunoglobulin infusion, like I said, about every four weeks, and then it lasts for about four weeks, and then it has to be topped up again. Just about all of our children are given a certain antibiotic. It's an antibiotic called Bactrim, or Cotrimoxazole. It's one of the sulfur families of antibiotics, pretty old-fashioned antibiotic. This is given for one reason only, and that's to prevent a particular infection called pneumocystis pneumonia. Pneumocystis pneumonia. This is an infection that people with an intact immune system would hardly ever see. We wouldn't see a pneumocystis infection in someone with a normal immune system. But children with an impaired immune system are very susceptible to pneumocystis pneumonia and that's why they're all given this antibiotic. It's called Bactrim and... Our usual is to give it on Monday, Wednesday and Friday, but different units have different plans. Some give it on Monday and Thursday, some give it every day, and it's to prevent that one particular infection. Of course, paying attention to nutrition is important as far as trying to enhance the immune system. And like I said, we spend a lot of our time on Nutrition, we have very expert dietitians, we have nasogastric feeding, intravenous feeding, dietary supplements, all sorts of strategies to try to boost nutrition. Now, of course, the best thing we could do would be to stop giving chemotherapy because it's really only when we stop giving the chemotherapy that the immune system will have a chance to recover. And even when we stop our chemotherapy, if it's been a strong program of treatment, and they usually are strong programs. It will take months and months and months and maybe a year or longer for the immune system really to be improved and close to back to normal. The neutrophils will recover quickly, but those other elements of the immune system, the lymphocytes and all of those components, they take time to come back to normal. So after we stop chemotherapy and when the central line's removed, we're still pretty cautious about infections for some months at least. And In bone marrow transplant, well, it goes on for years. So to summarise, children being treated for cancer and leukaemia are usually immune suppressed. And it's usually a side effect of the drugs, but it may be from the disease itself, particularly with leukaemia. They go through phases where they may have mouth ulcers and skin breakdown. They have low levels of the normal white blood cells periodically, They may have low levels of immunoglobulins, the antibodies, and a poor nutritional state. So all of this creates a big problem, I would say the major problem of side effects in treating children with cancer, namely a susceptibility to infection. Common infections, strange infections, obscure infections, and we spend a lot of our time treating with antibiotics and doing tests, trying to find out where a fever's coming from or what the particular infection is. For any particular child, you need to really get the advice of your oncologists to tell us, well, is this a strong program of chemotherapy or is this a less intensive program or is it one of these clever new drugs that don't have this effect? These are questions that you need to run by the treating team and get some insights into it. But just about all the time... That problem of immune suppression is there to some degree and a fever needs to be reported urgently. So I think I will leave it there. As I dictate this, it's March 2021. Sydney's just been totally flooded. Our dam is overflowing. It's been a bad month, but I'll talk to you next time. Bye now.